I'm Michael Sears at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. We continue our discussion about the new NE203 course here at the Naval Academy, and I'm joined by Dr. Roger Herbert, Captain, the United States Navy, retired. Professor Herbert, today we're talking about the just war tradition and what it's all about. Can you fill us in? Yeah, I think I can summarize the just war tradition relatively briefly, but I'll need to sort of back into this uh, by talking about uh, what just war theorists uh, are responding to in the first place. So, so the fundamental question that just war scholars are asking is when, if ever, is war morally permissible? Now, in general, there have been three answers to this question. Uh, the first is never. Um, war is is never morally permissible. Uh, this is the pacifist response. Uh, it, it essentially asks, you know, what what part of thou shalt not kill? Don't you understand? Uh, war means killing other human beings, often on a grand scale. Uh, so how can this ever be moral? Killing is wrong, always and everywhere. Full stop. The second response rejects the question altogether. The realist tradition, as it's known, insists that war is, it's neither moral nor immoral. It's, it's amoral. Uh, war is uh, an enterprise that exists outside the bounds of morality. Uh, in fact, um, some realist thinkers contend that uh, applying the normal constraints of morality to war uh, is itself an immoral act uh, because to do so is likely to prolong the conflict. Um, William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, the Union general in the U.S. Civil War, gives us the bumper sticker uh, for the realist take on morality. Uh, He he wrote that, that war is cruelty. Uh, There is no use trying to reform it. The crueler it is, the sooner it will be over. Okay, so the third answer to the question, when is war morally permissible, is sometimes. Uh, And this is the just war tradition. And it's the approach that we focus on in any 203. Even though studying the pacifist and realist approaches also, these these both have rich intellectual traditions, we focus on the just war tradition, which which our military generally embraces today. What the just war theory tries to do uh, essentially is to stake out a moral middle ground between the pacifists and the realists. If the state goes to war for a just reason and the war is fought by just means, then the just war tradition would judge that war as morally permissible. So as I understand it, there are two strands of this just war thinking. The jus ad bello convention and the jus in bello if I said that right. Why is that? And what are the differences between the two? Yes, exactly. Uh, Now, actually, there are some uh, scholars out there who argue that there should be uh, more than just those two strands. Uh, Michael Oren, for example, um, argues for a a just post bellum 
convention uh, to address post-war moral obligations. But but all all just war theorists agree to the two strands uh, that that you mentioned, Michael. Yusad um, Bellum and Yus in Bello. Uh, so these are the two conventions that we spend time on and, and teach our students in any 203. Um, I'll try to summarize both of them um, as briefly as I can. Uh, and I'll, I'll start with, with Yusad Bellum. Literally translated, Yusad uh, Bellum means justice to war, which is a bit awkward and not terribly helpful. But, uh, but the question it's asking uh, and attempting to answer uh, is when is it justified for the state to go to war, for the state to declare war? Now, it turns out we've been, you know, we've been thinking about this question for an awful long time. Plato and Thucydides uh, pondered this question uh, deeply in the wake of the Peloponnesian War in the, uh, in the 4th century BCE. St. Augustine, uh, writing in the, in the 4th century of the Common Era, considered war a great sin, but, but recognized that until the coming of, you know, of the city of God, um, the title of his opus, um, the city of man had to be defended uh, from the, the barbarians who, who, who literally were at the gate, at the gates of Rome. So Augustine sets parameters uh, for Christian communities to defend themselves and, and still be good Christians. But it was really the 13th century Dominican friar, uh, Thomas Aquinas, who, who rightfully is credited with the first rigorous uh, articulation of, of just war principles. Uh, he, he laid out three criteria that the state you know, had to meet in order to, to wage war justly on another polity. So the first of these three uh, was that war must be publicly declared by a legitimate authority. Typically, uh, legitimate authority means it means a head of state, um, a a president, a king, um, a prime minister. Uh, the the authority to wage war, in other words, you know, it resides with the prince, uh, not any any warlord who manages to attract the the loyalty of sufficient number of armed thugs or hired guns. Second, uh, war has to be fought for a just cause. Now, since the, the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, uh, this has come to mean almost exclusively uh, self-defense or defense of another state that, that is the victim of aggression. Um, although I should add, uh, in, in his monumental uh, book, uh, Just and Unjust Wars, uh, Michael Walser carves out room for, uh, for humanitarian intervention uh, in response to, um, uh, to what he terms acts that shock the moral conscience of mankind. Uh, but generally speaking, a just cause is, is, is ultimately self or other defense. The third of uh, Aquinas' ad bellum criteria uh, is that war must be fought for right intention. So it's not enough that a leader can cite a just cause for war 
the intention, um, the, the motivation for going to war has to be in, in concert with that just cause. Say, actually, this is a little hard to get your arms around, and, and I like to provide uh, my students with an example. So, so the 1991 Gulf War, I think, illustrates this nuance. In 1990, I hope all our students remember, the Iraqi army invaded and overran Kuwait, claiming it as its own. This provided the U.S.-led coalition with a pretty clear-cut just cause. I mean, this is undeniable. This is black and white. You can't do that. Uh, that, that is a, an act of aggression. Uh, and the world had a just cause for engaging Iraq to undo that. Our stated intention uh, was to drive the Iraqi army out of Kuwait um, if it would not leave peaceably, which it did not. So, so most agreed that uh, the intention suited the cause. Some uh, pundits, if you remember, uh, however, urged President Bush to take advantage of this opportunity to, to pursue the routed Iraqi army back into Iraq and then, and then depose Saddam Hussein, who had been a, you know, a thorn in our side for a long time. Had Bush pursued this course, this would have been an excellent example uh, in which the, the cause was just, um, but the right intention condition was not met. But President Bush, as we know, rejected this course of action. As a result, many cite the Gulf War uh, as, a, as a textbook example of a war in which all of the U.S. ad bellum conditions, um, legitimate authority, just cause, and right intent uh, were met. There are three more criteria that have been added to uh, the U.S ad bellum convention since Augustine. I can uh, move through these relatively quickly. Um, so the fourth ad bellum criterion is that that war must be a last resort. War can be considered a moral option only if the state has exhausted non-violent options like diplomacy or, or economic pressure. Fifth, a state must also have a reasonable hope of success. So e even if the cause is, is righteous, it should not, uh, the state should not just throw away the lives of its citizens if there's no way it can achieve um, those just objectives through force. The final ad bellum uh, criterion is proportionality of ends. Basically, the anticipated harm uh, that will result from a war should not exceed the benefits uh, that the state hopes to gain. Um, and it's, it's worth noting here, of course, that's very difficult to, to determine. And it's worth noting here uh, that both proportionality and likelihood of success uh, should not be just like one-time um, estimations uh, as as war reveals information about an adversary's strength. Uh, leaders have to, to continuously reevaluate uh, both the likelihood and, and the cost of victory. Um, so, so just to wrap this up, these, these six ad bellum criteria guide the decision to go to war. 
Uh, and that decision is the province of statecraft. Heads of state are, are held morally responsible for these decisions, not soldiers, not our students. Our students will, however, be held morally responsible for, for how they fight the wars that their leaders commit them to. And this introduces us to the second, the second major element of the just war tradition, jus uh, in bello. Roger, let me interrupt for a second, especially on that last point. So you say that at Bellum, principles apply to statesmen, presidents, prime ministers, kings, but not to warriors. So why do we spend time in any 203 on ad bellum? Oh, that's a great question, Michael. I, I, I pose this to my students every semester, and I always receive really, really thoughtful responses. So, so here, here are a couple that come to mind. The first is, is okay, if, if I know a war is just, it will probably make me more committed to the effort. Similarly, if I can, uh, can thoughtfully uh, explain to my troops why we're fighting, um, it will probably make them more committed to the fight as well. One of my students observed that, that ever since her plebe year, the folks back home who don't know any other military people uh, treat her like, like a spokesperson for the military on all issues, great and small. She observed that, that naval officers probably play a pretty important role in maintaining the public support. If, if they can thoughtfully explain to their friends and their family back home, you know, why a, a war that we may be engaged in uh, is, is just. Okay, yeah, great question. Um, l- let me pivot to, the, uh, to that second strand of the just war tradition, Yusin Bello. This is, this is the part that, as I say, our students will be, will be most definitely uh, held responsible for and held accountable for uh, as soon as they enter the, the Navy or Marine Corps. The, the U.S. Inbello conventions deal with the actual conduct of war. How much, how much force can be justifiably employed in war uh, and against whom? In, in any 203, uh, we discuss two U.S. Inbello principles, discrimination and proportionality. Discrimination is is really at the heart of, uh, of of what Shannon French calls the warrior code. It's uh, uh, Shannon used to be a professor here um, and and writes a, a wonderful book, The Code of the Warrior, which everybody should read. You know the the warrior code. It's it's what separates warriors from the murderer. There is a there is a fundamental moral distinction in war. And, and that is the distinction between combatants and non-combatants. Uh, a combatant is someone who is engaged in the business of war. A non-combatant is everyone and everything else. Um, a combatant may be intentionally harmed or killed. A non-combatant may never, never be intentionally harmed or killed. And not only must our warriors be able to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants on the battlefield, our weapons also must be able to make this distinction. This is why um, by poisonous gas, for example, has, has long been outlawed. Uh, it does not allow for discrimination. 
The second in bellow criterion is proportionality. Now, this is similar to the odd bellum proportionality criterion, but instead of looking uh, at the proportion the proportionality of the war in general, it can, considers proportionality of individual acts of war. Uh, in every case, the good that, uh, that a given act of war hopes to achieve should exceed the harm that it, that it causes. Um, now, now, this does not mean that, you know, if your enemy threatens you with a knife, uh, it would be disproportionate to uh, to kill him with your rifle. Um, th this is actually a common misconception of, among some of our students. You know, no, uh, we we want our enemy to bring a knife to a gunfight. Indeed, the, you know, the job of a military of military leaders is to ensure our enemy is always at a disadvantage. What our students need to focus on with proportionality is is focus on the ends. You know, if the harm averted outweighs the harm done uh, in an act of war, then the use of force is proportionate. Now, Im embedded in proportionality is, is also this requirement of necessity. And I mention this because some just war theorists break necessity out as a separate criterion. And I, I tend to lean in this direction myself. Necessity demands that that we use the least harmful means to achieve our military ends that we can. In other words, you know, it's it's not permissible. It's not permissible to levy destruction in war unless there is some military purpose for it. It's it's important for our students to remember that that war is not just carte blanche to kill enemy combatants and break things at will. I mean, if you can capture rather than kill without impacting the military mission, you know, you should capture. If you can walk around the wall rather than leveling it without impacting the military mission, then, you know, walk around the wall. Isn't there a risk that close adherence to the uh, use and bellow principles, walking around the wall, you know, discrimination versus uh, discrimination and proportionality could hamstring the troops. I mean, you're teaching them not to do their job. I know that's probably me pushing a little bit far, but certainly our enemies don't embrace those ideas. Aren't we putting our Marines and sailors at a disadvantage? Hmm. Yeah, th this is actually this is a question that comes up every semester. You know, there are probably many ways to answer that. Here are my two go-to responses uh, to that. First, you know, the, the ultimate goal of, of war is not to win the war. That usually lands like a bombshell with my students. Uh, I guess that's the penultimate uh, goal. The ultimate goal of war is to reestablish justice uh, or, or inaugurate a, a more just peace on the other side of war. So how a nation fights will influence what that peace will look like. Just ends are rarely achieved through unjust means. Second, and probably, probably more relevant to our students, a leader has a moral obligation to do her very best uh, to bring her troops home from war physically whole. Um, she can't always do that, but she, she's just got to try her best always. Nothing surprising here. 
But she also has a moral obligation to do her very best to bring her troops home as morally whole human beings. We spend a week, and in fact, it's right before we take up the just war tradition, so it's perfectly timed. We spend a week exploring moral injury. The best way to avoid moral injury is first, you know, don't send our sailors, soldiers, airmen and Marines to fight in unjust wars. And second, uh, when they must fight, don't ask our soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines to perform morally abhorrent acts like intentionally harming non-combatants. Um, the, the choices, uh, the choices that people make in war will stay for them for the rest of, of their days. Um, and if, if we want to take care of our troops, which I know all of our students say that they do, we must help them to make the right choices on the battlefield. Professor Roger Herbert, thanks for presenting this critical piece of the puzzle for the new NE203. This is stacking up to be a very powerful course. I appreciate the time. Oh, you're most welcome, Michael. It was a great pleasure. 